Let's give a hand to our worship team today, to the orchestra, <laughs> choir, and everyone did such a great job. <clears throat> I told the first hour worship time in this room that I had an epiphany. Uh, I, I just realized as I sat in the front of the pew that I now know how to get people to church on time Sunday morning. It's a rather simple thing involved with two things. Number one, have the service start an hour later every Sunday. That helps. And then number two, let everyone know we're going to have a concert like this, a worship time like this. You don't want to miss this. Of course, you guys come at a later time, so no problem with you being on time. But I just so much appreciate the worship today. My heart was deeply touched, and it helps to preach when your heart is moved. Recently, I attended a funeral in which the deceased requested a song to be sung. It was Onward Christian Soldiers. In all my time of doing funerals, I've never had that song requested. It's an unusual request, not just for funerals, but even for Sunday services. We don't do those militant songs anymore. I think one of the reasons why they're neglected in our worship and removed from our hymnals, at least in some places, is because we don't like war. And I get it. I don't like war either. But the real reason, I think, goes back to the abuse of this concept in church history that is based on a misunderstanding of Old Testament scripture. The abuse in church history I'm referring to are the Crusades, 11th century to the 13th century. The Crusades, a series of religious wars sanctioned by the Latin church, first starting in 1095 A.D. The fighting taking place in, uh, around the Mediterranean Sea and for the Holy Land. The aim was to recover the Holy Land from Muslim rule. They wanted to suppress suppress paganism and combat heresy. Those are noble pur purposes and to promote truth. Sometimes the wars were simply played out because the king wanted more territory or a greater name. But in all of this, they misused the Old Testament. They went into battle with crosses on their chest and verses on their lips, much like the verses you and I heard from Psalm 144 today. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and fingers for battle. You are the one who subdues people under me, David said. Send forth your lightning like divine arrows and destroy the people. Stretch out your hand from heaven above. Part the heavens and come down. Rescue me. Deliver me from the hand of foreigners. These people whose mouths speak lying words and whose right, in whose right hand, their right hand is the right hand of falsehood. Destroy them, Lord. And those are some of the very verses that these soldiers would use as they killed Muslims and other people to try to reclaim a physical land. The problem is David meant these words literally. Just like we're going to read in Joshua chapter 6 today, the battle was a literal battle. 
But you and I are not to read them literally. You say, how so? Because we are not Israel. We are not under the old covenant. We are under a new covenant. And under the new covenant, the message is clear. We fight not against flesh and blood, right? Ephesians 6. The enemy, not other human beings. And the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10. They're spiritual. They're mighty in God's hand. The weapons we use are the sword of the Spirit and all prayer. By the way, the New Testament book that reflects much of the theology of the Old Testament book of Joshua is the New Testament book of Ephesians. And so you and I understand that spiritual warfare is a reality and we must fight. Too many of us are like Sweden. We want to be neutral. We never take a side. We don't want to get involved in the conflict. But we are in one. And it's a spiritual battle and it's real and we need to know how to fight it. And the book of Joshua tells us how to fight it. Not with swords, swords loud clashing or the roll of stirring drum, but with deeds of love and mercy. That's how God's kingdom comes. It's by the sword of the Spirit and all prayer and godly living that God's kingdom advances. But we're going to learn from Joshua chapter 6 a little bit about how to fight our spiritual battles. And here's the first one. The first lesson that we need to learn is simply this. God has already given us the victory. That's an amazing truth that we often forget. We read in verse 1 of Joshua 6. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. The first part of chapter 5 says the people, the inhabitants of the city, were melting in fear. Their hearts were melting because of the fright of God upon them. And God had promised this. Exodus 23, I will send my fear before you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. Or Deuteronomy 2 God said, this very day, I will begin to put the terror and fear of you on all the nations under heaven. God said, this is going to happen, and it did happen. And then we read in verse 2 of Joshua 6, the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. That's before they did anything. Notice the tense. It's a done deal. And Warren Worsby is right when he says we fight from victory, not for victory. Did you get the nuance? We fight from victory, not for it. The battle is ours. The war has been won. And that gives us an unbelievable confidence. Jumping down to verse 16. When Joshua said, now at the end of your march, I want you to shout a loud shout, for the Lord has given you the city. It's a done deal. The city is yours. And I want you to know that God has given us victory after victory after victory. 
because we stand on victorious ground. Because of King Jesus, I have put death to death, Jesus says, 1 Corinthians 15. It's done. And God's kingdom has come, although there's more of it to be realized and more of it to be unfolded. And we're living in this weird world where we have the already but not totally complete. And yet we go into our battles, our spiritual battles, with this confidence, God has won the war for us. Never forget that. In John's Gospel, chapter 16, Jesus said something very similar. He said, I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace, because in this world... It's going to be a mess. You're going to have trouble. But be of good cheer. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Let that sink into your soul. Jesus didn't say, you know, I'm sorry I left so soon. I didn't finish everything I wanted to do. Now it's up to you guys. I'm wringing my hands here in heaven, hoping that you'll hold it together, hoping that you'll make a little bit of an advancement. Uh, you know, I, I started overcoming the world, but it's now left up to you. Oh boy, would we be in trouble. But he said, I've overcome it. Enter in to victory. The land is yours. The city is yours. Take it. That's the message of enter in in the book of Joshua. So God wants us in the midst of a troubled world, even when we experience difficult situations and what appears to be a frowning providence, he wants us to take heart and to be of good courage because we are overcomers more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. That's lesson number one, the outcome. Lesson number two is about the process. And boy, is this a lesson you and I need to learn. God's ways are not our ways. You and I say we believe it, <laughs> but here's a chapter that really demonstrates it. By the way, these instructions about process begin in verse 2, go down through verse 7. You know it very well. These instructions came to Joshua from the captain of the army of the Lord of hosts the night before, or the end of chapter 5. If you were here last week, you'll remember that Joshua went out most likely to get alone, maybe to spy on the city before the attack, and uh, God gave him some instruction. But here was this man with a drawn sword over his head, and Joshua said, are you for us or against us? And the man said, neither. <laughs> because the real question is not, Am I for you, but are you with me? And the captain of the Lord's army didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. And Joshua, what you need to learn is that although you're general, I'm commander-in-chief. I'm sovereign. I'm Jehovah. And when he knew that, he bowed before him and said, What's your message for me? What do you want me to do? And he gave Joshua this strategy. Now, this to me is somewhat humorous. I don't know how it happened, but imagine early in the morning, Joshua gets the guys together, the soldiers. Okay, guys, I saw God last night. He told me what we're going to do, and here's our battle plan. <laughs> we're going to walk around the city every day and then go home. Once a day, six days. I don't want you to say anything. 
but we'll have the shofar blow occasionally. Be silent, listen to the trumpet, and walk around the city. Now, we have a priest here to blow the shofar for us, priest Glenn Akers. If you would give us a demonstration of that shofar. It's good. It's close enough. I don't know what it sounded like. That's a real shofar from Israel. And it's a cheap one. Bought it at some <laughs> store. It's a souvenir. But it's real. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you very much. I'm sure they had bigger ones and maybe easier to blow and had different sounds. But it's a ram's horn. Israel had two trumpets. They had a silver one used for very special occasions, kind of auspicious occasions, and then the ram's horn, primarily used for celebration. Ram's horn was blown in the year of Jubilee, proclaiming liberty throughout the land. The ram's horn was blowing a sound, acknowledging that the presence of God was there. For here in the procession, there was an avant-garde, an advance guard. The soldiers made up the first part of it, and then there were priests with the horns, the trumpets, and then there was the ark, the presence of God. And then there were the people, not all the people, not two million people. I'm sure there were representatives from the 12 tribes marching around. The rest of the people would have stayed back and watched in amazement. And then there was a rear guard, and that made up the procession. And they made one loop, and then look at verse 11. After they circled the city, then they went home. Now, a basic understanding of Jericho uh, from the spade of the archaeologist is that it was about eight acres in its territory. Probably 12,000 people living in this particular city. And there were two walls 15 feet apart that went around the whole city, thick walls. We talked a little bit about this when we mentioned that Rahab would have lived in the wall and it would have been easy for her window to be exposed to the outside. It's interesting that the excavations of this city support everything that the Bible declares to us. You don't hear a lot about it because it supports the Bible. If they found something that proved the Bible to be wrong, you can better believe that would be touted from every media post in the land, but they can't. And so to go around this city, probably less than an hour. To walk the two miles from Gilgal to Jericho, I don't know, how fast can you walk a mile? 20 minutes? That's kind of slow. 40 minutes maybe to get there, 40 minutes to get back, a little over two hours, and their day is done. So Joshua says, this is what we're going to do. First day, we're going to make up this procession. We're going to parade around the city. It'll take a little over two hours, and we'll be back home with our family. And I'm sure someone must have said, you've got to be kidding. We're trained soldiers. This is not how you win a war. But remember, God's ways are not our ways. And there's no better illustration than right here. God's plans often appear to be foolish to men, absurd 
ridiculous, like preaching. <laughs> By the foolishness of preaching. Oh, it's a fool's errand in the eyes of the world. But not in the eyes of God. The preaching of the cross demonstrates the power of the God who lives. So we're living in a world, even among church people, where God's ways are ignored for new methods. God's weapons are prayer and the word. Holiness of life, deeds of mercy and kindness. That's how we advance the kingdom. You've watched the World Series, I'm sure, some of you. And uh, imagine in Game 7, one of the managers going to his team and said, okay, I've got a new strategy. We're 3-3. Three and three. We need to win this game. This is what we're going to do. When you take the field, I want all of you to turn around and don't face the batter, but look the other way. And then when it's our turn to bat, don't use bats. I want you to pick up musical instruments, and we're all going to walk around the infield every inning, once an inning. And at the end of the game, we're going to win. You say, well, that's ludicrous. No, no more ludicrous than this would have sounded to a soldier. We're going to do what? But the victory of all of this is going to prove that it's by God's hand and not the hand of man. Learn well the lesson that comes from Isaiah 55, where God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. For as the heavens are high above the earth, you're earthly people. I'm the God of the universe. I think in another stratosphere, you cannot in any way get up to the level of my thinking. My ways are different than your ways. When are we going to learn that lesson? And the timing of this, can't we do it all in one day and just get it over with? Why once a day? For seven days. By the way, the, the word seven, Shiva, is used often in this context. There are seven priests, and seven trumpets. There are seven days. And on the last day, seven circuits around the city. I think we can go way off in this thing called biblical numerology. But the Hebrew word Shiva means full, satisfied, complete. And when God does something, he does it perfectly and he does it completely so that we can be satisfied in him. And this plan is the perfect plan to display his glory and satisfy the people. And so the priests blow the horn and the procession goes around the city every day and they go home. Imagine the people in the city looking at this. Here they come. We are so afraid of these guys. We see them on the horizon marching from Gilgal. What are they going to do? Where are they going to attack? They probably stayed far enough away to be out of the range of the archers. And then walked around the city. A few blasts of the horn. And then they went home. And I'm sure they looked at each other and said, is this it? They're playing with us. Someone's coming from another direction. This can't be it. And the next day, they do the same thing. These guys are fruitcakes. They have no idea how to battle. And somewhere along that week, I think fear turned into overconfidence. We've got this thing. Until the seventh day, when they went around seven times, 
And with a loud shout, the walls came tumbling down. I just want to remind you that God's ways are not your ways. And while it may take a week for God to do something and demonstrate his power on your behalf, and you're told just to walk around the city, or it may take a month, or it may take years, or it may never happen as you want it to happen, God knows what's best because he's God. And that's the lesson Joshua learned the night before when he met the captain of the Lord's army. And that's the lesson you and I need to keep learning. The third thing I want to point out is simply this, and that is not only is there an outcome that is sure, God's given us the victory, a process that's unique, God's ways. Finally, the victory comes by faith. Not much of a secret for a Christian, but let me remind you, the victory comes by faith. How do I know that? Well, there's a great verse in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, that talks about all the heroes of the faith. And look at verse 30. It says that by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down when the people encircled the city, when they marched around it. It happened by faith. Faith is the reason. And faith in a God who can never lie, faith in a God who can never fail, is one of the most reasonable, reasonable things in the universe. The ark is mentioned multiple times because it's a reminder that God is fighting their battles for them, that God is in the midst. By the way, if you look at the procession, the ark is right in the middle of it all, gleaming and shining as gold would catch the sunlight of that desert region. When we obey God's word, we enjoy God's presence. When we obey God's word, we enjoy God's presence. And when God is with us, there is victory. This comes by faith. Israel learned that the word of God was true. I, I give kudos to these people and to the soldiers for going through with the plan and trusting Joshua, their leader, but more importantly, trusting the God who is leading them. Their parents never would have done this. They mocked and ridiculed for 40 years. But here's a new generation that believes. I would love to say that we are a new generation that believes, but are we? Or do we succumb to doubt and fear and think we know better than God. The secret of the victory is faith. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith, 1 John 5. And so when the walls came tumbling down, all of the wall fell except for one section that had a window with a red cord in it. That's where Rahab lived. And they went and they rescued her. Verse 17, the city and all that was, is in, in it are devoted to the Lord. And only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies. So verse 22, they rescued Rahab, all that belonged to her. They put her outside the camp because they were unclean until a period of time where she could enter the fold as a believer. And I love verse 25. 
They spared Rahab, and she's still with us even to this day. Whoever wrote this wrote as a contemporary who witnessed it and could say, look over there. There she is. That's Rahab. What a miracle of God's grace, as we all are, if we know the Lord. But I want to draw your attention to verse 17, devoted to the Lord. Very interesting word. And that can throw us, because that word devoted, we usually think of it as good. Uh, I'm devoted to the Lord. Uh, I'm devoted committed to following the ways of God. I have morning devotions that shows my commitment. But the word literally means committed, and in this case, committed unto destruction. Determined, devoted to be destroyed. The city and all that's in it are devoted to the Lord. Verse 18, keep away from the devoted things. So that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking anything there. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel, Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on the city or on the people. All the silver and gold, the articles of bronze and iron, they're sacred to the Lord and they must go into the treasury. By the way, this is reversed from the normal uh, plan because normally the soldiers receive the spoils of war and divide it among those who battle. But this is the first fruits that are given to God. This is the first battle in the new country. And everything is committed to him. And some of the expensive things, verse 19, are going to go into the treasury. And the rest is devoted to the Lord. Look at verse 21. After the walls collapsed, the soldiers went in. They devoted the city to the Lord. They destroyed with a sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle and sheep and donkeys. And you say, wait a minute. I have an ethical problem here. I thought your God is a God of mercy. You're wiping out this city. And verse 21 says everything. Men, women, young and old. I can understand Getting rid of the soldiers. But what about the young? I must confess to you that this is a challenging, challenging issue. But let me give you some guidelines, at least to begin to think about it. And guideline number one is simply this. Genesis 18.25 says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? God is a holy God. Everything belongs to him. And what he does is right. It may not seem fair from our vantage point, but remember his ways are higher than our ways. We can't even get into the arena in which we could contemplate the secret things of God. Secondly, we need to understand that Israel was the channel of blessing to the world through whom the Messiah would come. Genesis chapter 12. Israel, I want you to be uh, a blessing to all the nations and that is primarily through the messiah we learn in the new testament if the devil can corrupt israel and he tried constantly if he could somehow stop israel from being pure and following god maybe he could stop the messiah from coming why it was even warned in deuteronomy chapter 20 don't give in to the nations around you Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all their detestable ways. The ways that they 
work, the, the ways that they worship their foreign gods, and you'll sin against God. And by the way, this happened later on when Israel began to worship the Baals. And in doing so, they began to practice the same detestable things that the nations around them that weren't put out of the land practiced. Thirdly, you have to understand that the Canaanites were an unimaginable or, or an unbelievably wicked people. It's hard to imagine how wicked they were. They did sacrifice their own children in the fire constantly. And also added to that, they heard 40 years ago that the most powerful God brought Israel out of Egypt and that his power is greater than all gods. And for 40 years they knew it and never turned. And they saw his power once again when he crossed, they crossed over the Jordan River. And they never turned to the Lord. Oh, they're not without light. And their practices were evil. And by the way, this is no different than the world in Noah's day. When judgment came upon a wicked generation. This is the judgment of God in Joshua chapter 6 on the city of Jericho. And that same judgment of God is coming upon our world if we will not turn to Christ. G. Campbell Morgan, I think, said it best. God is perpetually at war with sin. That is the whole explanation of the extermination of the Canaanites. You see, we don't hate sin as much as God does. His thoughts are different than ours. And he knows what will happen if sin plays out. And he wants the Messiah to come to be the Savior of the world. And as in Noah's day, so it was in Joshua's day. And so it will be in ours. There's a way out. God has given us his light in the person of Jesus Christ as our only hope. And then we read in verse 24, they burned the whole city, everything in it. which is indicative of the judgment of God coming and sounds a lot like that final day. Hell is compared to a furnace of fire, Matthew 13, a fire that is eternal, unquenchable, a lake of fire. This is the judgment of God on all who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And a curse. Did you see that in verse 26? Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, Cursed be before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild the city of Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. And 400 years later, 1 Kings tells us that's exactly what happened. Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid the foundation at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken to Joshua, the son of Nun. God's word is true. God's ways are best. He has given us the victory, and we embrace and experience the victory by faith. And there's a time to proclaim the love of God and there is a time to proclaim the wrath of God.
It's all found in the scriptures. A pastor once attended a court hearing to protest the building of a tavern near his church in a public school. The lawyer for the tavern owner said to him, I'm surprised to see you here today, Reverend. Shouldn't you be out as a shepherd taking care of your sheep? The pastor replied, today I'm fighting the wolf. And so it is. A shepherd must fight and protect and feed and nourish. And Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. Oh, there's a time to fight, my friend, and it is now. And our enemy is not flesh and blood, it's the devil. And the victory's already been won. And your spiritual battles can be won by grace when you surrender by faith to the victor. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your name is holy and it is to be revered. We long for your kingdom to be done in this world just like it's done in heaven. Every provision we need, you give to us. Spiritual, physical. And we pray that you will keep us from yielding to temptation and giving in to the evil one. Defeat him. And cause us to go forward by faith with spiritual weapons for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.